You know, I talk a lot about running barefoot and a lot of people talk about the ways to run barefoot. And what if the ways that people have told you, maybe even me, are completely wrong? What if you've been misled about what it takes to take off your shoes and have a good time running without your shoes, with your feet touching the ground? Well, we're going to find out on today's episode of the Movement Movement Podcast, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body starting feet first, because those things are your foundation after all. We break down the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the flat out lies you've been told uh, about what it takes to run or walk or hike or play or do yoga or CrossFit, whatever it is you like to do, and to do it enjoyably, efficiently. Did I mention enjoyably? That was a trick question because I know I did. Because look, if you're not having fun, do something different till you are. Because if you're not having fun, you're not going to do it any, for a long time anyway. So um, I'm Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com. I'm the host of the Movement Movement podcast, if you don't already know that. And we call it the Movement Movement because we are creating a movement that involves you in a very easy way that I'll describe in a moment about moving, about natural movement. We're helping people rediscover that natural movement, using your body the way it's made to be used, is the better, obvious, healthy choice, the way we currently think of natural food. And so the movement part that involves you is simple. If you like what you hear, just you know, spread the word. Come to our website, www.jointhemovementmovement.com. There's no cost to join. There's no membership fees or secret handshakes. Just, you know, subscribe if you want to hear about upcoming episodes. Check out the previous episodes. Follow us on all the various channels where you can follow us. You'll see all those on the website. And then give us a thumbs up or a like or a review, all those things that you know how to do. If you short, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let's jump in now, Jay, before I say anything, I have to point out two things. One, you are the first person who has been on the podcast now twice. Ooh. I know. You should exciting. feel special. But this happened because we had some other conversation where um, this topic came up about running form and barefoot running form, and uh, it seemed like we really needed to dive in. So here we are. The second point I want to make, I totally forgot we were having this conversation today, hence the lack of shaving and my hair pulled back because I didn't have time to shower this morning. So I just thought I'd let you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jay, do me a favor. Would you introduce yourself and tell people who you are and what you do with your life? Yes. So my name is Jay Grunke, and I'm the founder of The Balanced Runner, as people watching can see the sign. Um, so I'm a Feldenkrais practitioner and running form expert, and I help runners uh, improve their form mostly to get over injury and, and uh, fulfill their potential and feel really great like they're a kid again. Do you want to, um, Feldenkrais is one of my favorite things. We talked about this on our first call that I, I happily had the great pleasure of having some sessions with one of the guys who brought Feldenkrais to America, um, Tom Hanna, for people who are hip to knowing things like that. And uh, But can you, in a nutshell, explain what that is for people who don't know? It's a movement education method. So it's not exercise. It doesn't use strengthening or stretching. It really deals with what your nervous system knows about how to coordinate movement uh, to fulfill your intentions in the world. And uh, it works with the process that we used as infants to learn how to move and, you know, sit and crawl and walk and run. Um, I'll give my personal twist on that, which is um, fun. The thing that I love about Feldenkrais is that when someone has some injury, what they're often tempted to do, we're all tempted to do, is try to keep working on that thing to somehow make it better. And one of the things Feldenkrais does is focuses on the parts that are working well and using how your brain works to basically have the good side of you. If you, if, let's say something's bilaterally asymmetrical, mm -hmm. um, have some have the good side of you effectively teach the bad side of you what good is. And it's very effortless and often shocking. In fact, in many ways, uh, th this is a bit of a tangent, the experience can be so surprising that it can really upset your own sense of who you are. Because many people identify with movement limitations they have. And when they discover how effortlessly they can have some different experience, it kind of messes up their, it can mess up their brain from being um, someone who's always seeking a solution to someone who found it without working. And that can, you know, that can mess with people's head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that using one side to teach the other is one of many strategies that, that we use in the Feldenkrais method. Uh, you know, Moshe Feldenkrais was way ahead of his time in terms of understanding how motor learning 
works. And uh, so, you know, periodically I'd dip back into, you know, so what is the, what is the research saying now? And it's always a really interesting confirmation of different aspects of the method. So, you know, it's really, it sounds culty or new agey, but it's really, you know, Moshe Feldenkrais was a scientist and it's, yeah, it's, um, it's really science-based. And I try to avoid at all costs mentioning to runners all the things that the Feldenkrais method can do for them as a human being, because mm -hmm. I wouldn't have any clients if that were true. It just beggars belief. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, we, we just try to keep that quiet. Your secret is safe with me. <laughs> but the thing to know is like a brain exists to organize movement. Yes. Like across all species, that is what a brain is for. Anything that locomotes through space has a brain, some version of, or nervous system, and anything that doesn't, such as a plant, doesn't have a brain because they're very energetically expensive. And so whenever you really deal with how you're organizing movement, because that's the foundation of everything that your brain is doing, it affects everything. And the thing that people don't often don't realize is the sort of cyclic, cyclical, that's not really what I want to say, but I'll say it that way. The cyclical nature of that, because you're getting information from your body that's going to your brain that's telling your body how to move from the information that it gets. So if you're cutting off the information flow, you're interfering with that process, that cycle, if you will, um, that feedback loop is what I was really looking for. And this is, of course, what, you know, when you have a shoe that looks like the one I'm holding up, which has, for people who aren't watching, big, thick, elevated heel, ton of cushioning, ton of padding, squeeze your toes together, all those things that are, quote, normal, all of that gets in the way of giving your brain the information that it needs to know how to locomote you through the place where you are locomoting. I love it when my clients hold up a shoe like that and say, see, my shoes are pretty good. <laughs> well, because that's what they've been told for 50 years. You need arch support and motion control and padding. And the one thing that no one's ever been able to explain is why, what's with the pointy toe on shoes? Because you clearly don't need that. But why do people even think that that makes any sense whatsoever? You know, but if you look back at like pretty pictures of medieval dress, you know, and you see these long pointy toes, like it's, it's a kind yeah. of ornamentation that I think has been around a long yeah. time and probably exists partially to announce, I am civilized. Hmm. I am so different from a wild human. <laughs> it's definitely something, but that's all. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive into um, what I teased at the beginning and what uh, inspired you to reach out to me and me to say, let's get you on here a second time. Do you remember what that inciting moment was? I was listening to your wonderful interview with Tony Post. Oh. That was a great show. We have and, fun. And for me, you know, I already, I started doing what I do in 2003. So when the barefoot minimalist movement hit in 2009, I was already well underway, but it changed a lot of things. And then it made a lot of things stay the same <laughs> to my great astonishment. Yeah. So, you know, I was sort of picked up and carried by that wave and thought I should really be paying royalties to Christopher McDougall. Um, <laughs> I, I teased Chris McDougall wrote the book Born to Run with both the book Born to Run and um, Dr. Daniel Lieberman's research that came out in Nature about habitual barefoot runners versus putting them in shoes versus habitual shod runners. Those two things really catalyzed the whole barefoot running slash natural movement movement. And uh, back in 2009, and it really kicked in in 2010 um, after that. So we used to joke that, uh, and I used to tell Chris to his face, I would say, you're my unofficial marketing department because he was on a book tour and anywhere he went, people started looking up what he was talking about and they would find what we were doing. Yep. And um, yeah, one of my guerrilla marketing tactics was going into bookstores and putting our business cards in copies of his book. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> it was effective. Yeah, yeah. So what was it in that chat I had with Tony that made you go, hmm? Well, it was, it was just really great to hear about that time from inside, from insiders in the minimalist footwear industry, you know, or there wasn't even an industry yet at that point, but, yeah. and to see it through that lens. And it really took me back. And, you know, you were talking, one of the things you talked about was some of the factors that undermined that wave. And uh, one I thought that you missed or weren't aware of was this parallel wave of running technique education, which suddenly mm. really became a thing. You know, like it wasn't a thing. I was trying to do this thing that wasn't a thing because I was a former dancer and I thought everybody thinks about technique, right? right? But 
that wasn't true of runners. And suddenly it became true. And so, you know, there had been people, there was Danny Dreyer Chi running, Nicholas Romanoff, Pose Method, but um, maybe a couple of, but not much. Um, and suddenly became a thing that was very popular to think about. And runners are taking off their shoes at the same time, willy nilly, and looking for someone to tell them what to do. And so, yeah, a lot of experts suddenly appeared. Right. And some of them truly experts, but mostly, you know, overnight experts. And um, a lot of bad advice was given. And when I, and I really think it's part of the story. It's definitely part of the injuries. Um, it's definitely frustrating to me, you know, when that, that movement, when it first happened, you know, like I, I had a baby in 2009 also. So I had a lot of time for like thinking. Uh, but not a lot of time for doing <laughs> so. So you were actually able to think when after you had your baby? Well, yeah, because you can like, to the extent that the brain works, I mean, yeah. what, what you make up from in what you what you lose in like basic brain function due to deep exhaustion and right. you know, having poured half your body's nutrition into making this other person, um, you do gain in quantity of hours that you are awake. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're one of the few mothers who has identified the benefit of lack of sleep and energy uh, that comes yeah. from a child. Well, you know, also disinhibition, you know, you're a little bit like a drunk person when you're really sleep deprived. And that definitely opened up some opportunities for me where I just acted where I normally would have stopped myself. So right. anyway, there's always a silver lining. A but weird, it gave me the time to listen to the audio book of Born to Run a few times through and think, oh, you know, I'm going to be out of business. Interesting. Why out of business? Because when you take your shoes off, it's so much easier to feel what you should be doing. And I thought people are not going to need advice. And people are certainly not going to be giving out the wrong advice because it's just so clear it's wrong. But? But that is not what happened. Right. The opposite. So, what it, so yeah, just talk about what happened from your perspective. And then let's talk about, let's jump into what I teased about is what people have, and this will be part of it, of course, is just what people were saying that was incorrect or what people heard it was incorrect, what people were doing right. that prevented them from having, from basically making all footwear go away, which is what the big shoe companies were terrified about during that. Era. I know. I mean, they were putting out content, you know, my, the way I, I jokingly say it is they were putting out things saying, if you, if you don't wear running shoes, you're going to step on hypodermic needles, get Ebola, your mortgage rate's going to go up. Your kids won't get into college. You'll forget to use the letter E. I mean, just, you know, amazing things that were mind blowing. And then of course, by the end of 2010, they're all putting out shoes they called barefoot and minimalist that were nothing of the sort right. and trying to capitalize on the wave. So, yeah. but to your point, what'd you see that people did that made it clear you were not going to be out of business? Well, you know, it, I was just seeing the wrong advice and, and I think it was, I think it was, um, I get in a lot of trouble for this, but I think it was the Pilates industry stepping in and feeling they had a place. Interesting. Yeah. And misapplying Pilates concepts to write because there's this this trap people get into of thinking good posture is all the same like organizing your well yourself well is the same no matter what you're doing and in fact Feldenkrais practitioners know good organization depends entirely on what it is you're trying to do and involves adapting yourself to the task and um, good organization for running should be more accessible to us than most things because running is a fundamental human gait. This is not like, you know, motocross or, you know, gymnastics. snowboarding. Yeah, yeah, or gymnastics. That's right, where we made up this stuff, you know, yeah. and it sort of capitalizes on movement capacities we have, but it didn't have evolutionary utility for us. It's not right. like something everyone comes to without equipment by themselves at some point in their childhood. So yeah, it should all be there. But but modern life means it's not. And people are, you know, everything about our culture divorces people from the ability to listen from their bodies and the ability to listen to feedback from their bodies to a large extent. And so I think that meant that people were very confused when they took their shoes off instead of feeling like everything's clear now. So uh, what were some of the specific things? Let's dive into the details. Yeah. On things that people were doing or things that people were teaching that you see as incorrect. Yeah. So um, run tall, that is very vague. It's not 100% bad, but is basically interpreted to mean and often was intended to mean run upright, mm. be vertical, do not lean forward. Um, and also like ang language undermines us here because yeah. Uh, different people interpret different words the same way. But, you know, there was a component to that by which I think people meant don't slouch, don't hunch, but it, 
then again, you wouldn't be doing any of those things anyway, if you knew how to move. So you, you don't have to ever think about not doing those things. Well, and well, anything. I, well, I want to address that one because I think you're absolutely yes. right. So cues are problematic. Running cues or movement cues are problematic for two reasons. One is how people say it <laughs> and right. whether whether and, and whether it's actionable and then how people hear it and whether they're hear, hearing it accurately if it is an accurate statement to begin with yeah. this is a comment that i made one of my sprinting coaches at one point we're doing a drill and he says you know when you're in in the air there you need to have your hips over your feet and i said i can't rearrange my body in the middle of the air that way there's not what you're really trying to say is i didn't take off in a way that put my hips and my feet in the relationship that you want and he's like well yeah so, but that's not what you said. And you just happen to be one of those lucky guys who figured it out from your coach telling you that line, um, like run tall, you figured it out and just now you're repeating it, but you never really did the English translation or the, you know, the bad advice to, to actual movement translation. So the run tall thing, the best thing I can say is I've seen so many people that when they run, they basically keep collapsing in their, I don't like to use the word cord, their hips really. They're, yeah. they, they're not a taut spring at the right angle, but they're just, they're, they hit the ground and kind of collapse and then try to re-expand and collapse and re-expand. So I think that's what that cue ultimately meant, but it's a horrible cue because it's not talking about that. It's talking about this idea, just when you hear tall, you try and stretch to make sure, you know, you're five foot five still, that's what I am. Um, and right. not, you know, somehow getting shorter over time. Yeah. And I do think some people do mean, no, don't lean forward. Some That's not right. No, you're right. Yeah. Some people totally <laughs> you know? mean that. Yeah. yeah. Because that can't be right because, you know, that's not right for standing or for walking. So it can't be right for running, but it is. And then you get this, but you know, then the version of like, imagine a string is pulling you up from the top of your head. And all of these things really stress the forefoot. In, Say in more. Running. Yeah. So... So one of the classic injuries that happened for people who transitioned very rapidly to um, minimalist or barefoot running was metatarsal stress fracture, second mm -hmm. classic runner's second metatarsal stress fracture. Right. And the story that people tell themselves about that is, oh, it's the impact, right? But nobody lands on their second metatarsal, not even people who are prancing on their forefeet. Stress wait, fracture. I'm going to pause though, um, because I want to highlight this. Many people think that people who did make that transition, whether they made it fast or slow, the stress fractures were almost endemic, that they were part and parcel with getting out of regular footwear, and that it happened a lot. And it didn't happen a lot. It happened mm -hmm. more than we've and people get stress fractures running in regular shoes. Yes, they so, do. Those same and, ones. And nobody ever, I never saw a study comparing the percentage of barefoot runners or minimalist runners in truly minimalist shoes who were getting metatarsal stress fractures with regular shod runners. So there was the way the shoe companies were presenting it is this is happening to everybody. That's why you need shoes. But there was no data that I saw that said it was happening more or less than people who were running in shoes. But to your point, there are certain things that I noticed, and we can maybe talk about that, that would lead more likely, have more likelihood for leading to a metatarsal stress fracture than not. Um, but I'm going to pause and I'm going to hold that in reserve until I hear you say more about this. Yeah. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say. But um, so what I see, yeah, you can get, I mean, it has nothing to do with the cushioning. Right. Um, a stress fracture is caused by shearing stress, right? Not by blunt trauma you know, like a regular fracture. So it happens gradually, the weakening of bone over the time by trying to bend the bone in a place where there is no joint. Mm. Right? And so what is a what is a second metatarsal stress fracture? Well, that's you trying to bend your forefoot too far back from where the actual joint is with the big toe, the MTP joint. And that happens on pushing off the ground on toe off mm. or... <laughs> metatarsal off, <laughs> um, <laughs> not on landing. And so what puts your weight too far back and makes you have to push really hard against the ground to toe off? Run tall. Being upright. And not only just being upright, but being upright and stiff. Right. Because toe off is a cooperative action of your whole body. Your your poor little flipper feet are not strong enough to do that if you hold their, if the rest of you is just a stiff refrigerator. Well, but let's and let's again I'm gonna keep interrupting you to pause there because yes. there's so much to unpack in all of this. So many people think 
that, and they think this from running in shoes that look like this one that I have that has this thing called toe spring where from the ball of the foot up, it's stiff and elevated off the ground. And mm -hmm. they built that into shoes because they made the shoes so thick that they couldn't bend. You couldn't bend your feet naturally. So they tried to do something to make it approximate that. So now uh -huh. you have your toes bent back towards your knee all the time, dorsiflexed, which they shouldn't be, and they can't right. bend forward. So people got the idea from that, that the way you have to run is that you, there is this active, aggressive thing called toe off where you are pushing yourself off the ground with your toes. And that's where you get your power, despite the fact that when you look at what happens with a runner and force, there's nothing you can do with your feet at that point that's going to be helpful. That's yeah, after the fact. It's too late. It's way too late. Yeah. yeah, it happens, you know, your maximum ground reaction force is in mid stance. Yep. And then then it it's off. reducing, you know, and you're telescoping out through all your joints on the on the stance side of your body. Yep. You know, the moment the fraction of a second as you, that you leave mid stance, and all the pushing is done by the time you get to your toes. Yep. Um, but people are still trying to, and then people try to squeeze their glutes, and they try to do all sorts of nope. things to feel like they're pushing off at that moment. So and again, I'll, I'll wait and tell you the, the thing I saw that was causing stress fractures. So why do you think people got the idea that's other than they, they were used to it from shoes and mm -hmm. they got this thing about run tall? Was there any other instruction that was you think was leading people to that form problem that then created that problem? Yeah, there are a number of things that can get you there. I mean, the run tall, the lift your chest, the pull your shoulders back, you know, all they put your weight too far back and they stiffen your torso. So again, you can't do that cooperative telescoping out of one side of your body. Mm. And you can't do opposite things with the two sides of your body, which is true at every moment in running. So any running form cue that involves you trying to do the same thing with both sides of your body at once, no matter what it is, is going to create a problem. Good point. Right? Yeah. And so you pull both shoulders back. Well, that's a problem because one needs to be going forward. Right. And the other needs to be going back. Lift your chest. It totally stiffens your spine mm. as well as pushing your head back. Mm. Um, and then the forefoot stress and then anything that you do to try. And uh, there was a lot of this also, but there's always a lot of this. It's not special. They, it was not a special part of the... Um, minimalist barefoot stuff, the idea that you should stabilize your core, which is interpreted to mean kind of hold your pelvis still, tighten your abs, you know, not everybody means it that way, but that's the common application interpretation. So that also prevents this ability to release your weight from the front of the foot. And so instead, you have this downward and backward pressure too far back on the foot. And for me, that's what I see in runners shod or unshod. Mm -hmm. whatever the heck they're wearing, yeah. you have the second metatarsal stress fracture. You know, and for me as, as a Feldenkrais practitioner, my lens is that I'm always looking at the whole body. So I'm right. never looking at foot muscle or just what's happening at the ankle or whatever. So okay. um, what are you seeing with that injury? Yeah. So my favorite comes from the University of Colorado, where one of the researchers there, one of the head researchers in a lab sponsored by Nike, spent a bunch of time uh, trying to prove that running barefoot was bad for you by studying things that no one ever claimed had anything to do with running barefoot um, or that were completely irrelevant. Uh, you know, that's neither here nor there. Suffice it to say, um, I bought that guy a beer and he hasn't spoken to me since. But uh, there's a picture outside of his lab of a barefoot runner. And she basically, she was doing something that I, I saw once that I, I, I couldn't believe. People got the idea you're supposed to land on the ball of your foot or midfoot, for example. And I'm running with someone and she's still overstriding. She's still reaching with her foot way out in front of her body when it's going to land. And then plantar flexing, pointing her toes and landing right on the ball of her foot where, I mean, that's just way more force than your foot is designed to handle because it's not aligned properly. The bones are not aligned properly. The muscles are not aligned properly. I mean, everything is, you're putting on the brakes. You're hitting the ground with, you know, four to 600 pounds of force in a place that is not designed to handle that at that angle. Right. So that was a picture right outside. It's like, here's barefoot running. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not, no, no, no. Right. No one ever said you should do that. Right. So if you're, letting, yeah, if you're letting your runners do that and you're calling that accomplished barefoot runners in your lab, it's proof that you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And they're, yet you're not getting accomplished barefoot runners. They, yeah. Well, I because no that. one lasts doing that anyway. No. And I and, and that was something that I saw a number of times where people had the idea that all I need to do is just point my toes and prance a little bit. And that's, you know, stress fracture city. <laughs> oh, my gosh, the prancing. Yeah. So, and uh, my feeling about that is it's still rare that a person is landing on their second metatarsal. That's true. They're usually going to be fourth or fifth at that point. Exactly. Yeah. But that is a recipe for Achilles tendon problems. Also and that's true. the other epidemic thing 
And I, I totally hear you about the stress fractures not necessarily being an epidemic. You know, I had enough people come to me to say, you know, I made this transition and then a year later, I mean, it tends to be a year later. Right. That happens. And when they've also been following those running form cues, it's easy to connect the dots. Yeah. But whether it happened more frequently or not, I don't yeah. know. Well, I mean, um, I had like doctors, I remember doctors saying, love this barefoot running thing. I'm seeing so many more patients. It's putting my kids through college. I said, yeah, but you said the same thing when running shoes came out in the 70s. So get your story straight. And I, I would say to these doctors, there's just more people trying something. So you're seeing more people because the people who are having no problems don't come to you for help. They don't right. need it. So unless you know what the whole population is, the percentage that you're seeing is not represented, necessarily representative of what's actually going on. Um, right. You know, it, it's a whole other thing. So let's move ahead. What else did you see that was bad advice slash bad form? Yeah, well, let's let's just go for this, like land on your forefoot thing. Okay. I mean, there was also, and this is, you know, especially coming, especially coming from uh, research by Lieberman et al. about landing forefoot instead of rear foot. <laughs> and there's a, there's a terminology issue because some people say that anatomically there is no midfoot. And so that leads to the word forefoot being used a lot by a lot more. And that was interpreted to mean, yeah, you really, you're landing the way a dancer lands a jump, you know, toe, ball of the foot, heel. Of course, dancers are normally going straight up and down. Right. In case they're not trying to go forward. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to be Most said about that. But there's much more vertical in a dancer's jump. Jeté. Yeah. So anyway. So does Shaw, my favorite. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. I remember I was a while later, I was living in Scotland and I was invited to speak two years in a row at the Scottish Barefoot Running Conference where everybody had Achilles tendonitis. <laughs> it's like so hilarious. I have written a number of things where I say Achilles and calf pain are optional. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have, so like I was, I was a dancer. I was professionally barefoot for mm -hmm. 12 years or so. And, um, and then I got running shoes. This was like in the late nineties when I wanted to start running because I thought, oh, well, you know, that's just what you do and got used to that and had retired from dancing. But then I had my baby and I couldn't run through my pregnancy because specific issues. So when I was ready to go back and I've been listening to one run and I was like, well, so every part of me is weak right now. So why would I go into running? Sh I, this was my perfect moment to just get, I got, so, you know, an early version of Vivo Barefoots and um, just did that from that point on, you know, and let my mm -hmm. feet get strong. But it wasn't a stretch for me because my feet right. were already, but I remember going through that process. I still had a year where, well, I think it was the deep calf was just mm -hmm. really adapting. And so I didn't have like a tendon problems, you know, but it would just, I was just stiff for like a year. So yeah. like I'd be sitting and then I'd stand up and I'd just take a moment before I started to walk. <laughs> well, so was there some specific instruction that you were seeing that was leading to this for people? Is that an English right. thing? Yeah, sorry. So that was a digression. So, you know, so my experience is that there was some calf stiffness. Mm -hmm. Then again, motherhood puts a big load on the calves because True. you're holding a baby a lot in front of you. And so the calves were more so that was also in the mix. But the Achilles tendon issues, I mean, partially, I think people just been going from like a 10, 12 millimeter drop to zero drop too fast. And the Achilles tendon just couldn't make the jump that fast. But uh, this landing forefoot, this idea that you should change your foot strike, mm. that you could change just your foot strike, mm. got masses of people into trouble because you can't change just your foot strike. Your feet are landing where and how they have to land to keep you from face planting. <laughs> right? Well, survival they can land in other ways too. I mean, if you're overstriding, that's not just keeping you from face planting because you're there's no way you're gonna you're gonna face plant if your foot's right in front yeah. of your body. But, but yes, falling but, but fundamentally, yes, fundamentally, yeah. that's your if you are falling, your foot is going to put itself somewhere to keep you from doing that, ideally. Right. Yes. And there's going to be one place that's best. Yes. And the whole body mechanism that's moving your leg forward is going to cause, you know, plus wherever it has to land is going to cause one part of your foot to hit first. Right. Right. And so if you are 
either very upright or even flexed and you are slouching a bit, well, there's no way to do anything other than heel strike if you're doing mm -hmm. that because you're all in a flexion pattern and that just flexes the foot as well. Um, but what a lot of runners did who were overstriding with a, you know, big hard heel strike, um, heel striking, of course, not being always bad and there being a lot of nuance to it. They just tried to change at the ankle. Right. Just point their toe. <laughs> to have the four and, right. and did exactly what you're describing in that picture of the runner outside the right. lab, a big overstride with a four foot strike. Right. And so then if it's the heel, you've got this breaking force. You've, you've kind of got a linkage of bone up into your hip joint in your lower back and you've got yeah. this breaking force and it's going to, you feel it in your lower back and the, the nature of the gait cycle is you'll then later, because of where you are in mid stance, you'll feel it in your knee, patellar tendon, classic runner's knee. But if you switch to handling that, to doing that with your forefoot, then you're not getting the linkage through the bone. It's actually um, your calves and your Achilles tendon are being forced to create that breaking force and then um, eccentrically. Right descend the heel to the ground and it's just brutal on the well there's hand. there's one that i think you might be missing because there were some coaches who, who were suggesting your heel should never come down to the ground yes no that's on my list <laughs> <laughs> Got it. yeah a, that's a like oh, and the even worse version of that is right and they were i my jaw dropped when i read that like that yeah. can't now i, I don't mean, understand I, that I've, because I've, you have to keep your contracted the whole Whole the whole time, time. And, I, I, and I've seen some of those runners, and there are a couple of people who were successful at doing that. Um, but um, it reminds me of a woman that I went to college with, who I don't think I ever saw her heels touch the ground. I don't mean when she's running; I mean ever, ever the way she right. walked, the way I mean that's just how she walked. Admittedly, she had great calves and a great butt, but that's regardless. That's not a way to do it. Um, and and you know, I just remembered at the um, the World Masters Track and Field Championships in Finland back in two thousand eight or so. Same thing. There was a, a runner, very accomplished runner, who say, he walked the same way. His heels never touched the ground. Um, but to your point back well, about switching quick. Well, let me just say, I mean, that's a that's a thing, though. That's brisket extensor reflex. And that's usually caused by a very, by a, a little bit of an interruption in oxygen during birth. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. So it causes a very small amount of brain damage that just makes the extensors the extensor tone be higher. Yeah. So that's, you know, and so a person who, as my old anatomy teacher said, is very amenable to education. If you know how to help a person learn how to change their gait, they can, but they, you, they can't just want to put their yeah, heels yeah, yeah. down and start doing it. That would never work. So well, yeah. So people who are, but yeah, so that's a thing anyway. Well, back to your point about, you know, um, going from an elevated heel to a flat shoe, a zero drop shoe too quickly. There's, there's two things about that that made me think of. One is that I watch people running who are, who are running well. They're landing forefoot underneath their body, basically, um, in regular shoes. But the thing that's happening, of course, is because they have this high-heeled shoe, they're not letting the Achilles do its job of being the actual spring that it's supposed to be. They're not letting it, ex well, stretch all the way and then recover all the way. Mm -hmm. So they're interrupting that process. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely that component, you know, maybe part of um, the idea of switching too fast. But I would argue that it's not a question of um, going from a 12 millimeter drop to 10 to eight to six to five to four to whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, that's what Adidas came out with was transition shoes. They weren't going to go mm -hmm. for something zero drop. So they said, here, if you're going to go there, there are four shoes to wear along the way. Mm -hmm. My contention is that everyone had the, the Achilles flexibility and probably strength as well if they made the transition slowly, not the transition of heel height, just the transition to running in this new way more slowly. So hmm. I could be wrong, but but that's what I saw from my experience was people could go cold turkey to zero drop or barefoot um, as long as they weren't trying to keep their heel off the ground, because a lot of people did hear that, as long as they weren't overstriding and pointing their toes, because that's putting all that force on it as well. With the right form, this is why I say Achilles and calf problems were optional, Oh, and if they weren't towing off, if instead they're lifting their foot off the ground by flexing the hip, if they do those things correctly, then and then just build up the amount of time they're running barefoot or in truly minimalist shoes, starting very small, 20, 30 seconds, and then, you know, add 10 seconds at a time if you feel good, then those people I, I saw never had a problem. But it was the form issues that, to, our, to your point, often came from either coaching cues that were incorrect or just misinterpretation or, you know, or, or lack of information and therefore trying to put it together without any, any coaching 
that led to these things. That's where where I saw it. Yeah, yeah. I um, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I, I definitely with my clients, I try to get everybody at least within the ACSM's 2014 guidelines. So I don't know if you know those off the top. Yeah, I do. Well, my favorite thing is, you know, that when the people who wrote those, they basically, um, they basically said you should be wearing minimalist shoes. Yeah. But they couldn't say that explicitly because the American College of Sports Medicine, the ACSM is sponsored by Adidas. So, (laughs) so there's some political things in there. Oh yeah. Some of the people who were responsible for that paper live in our shoes. But again, that's a whole other story. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it was a good paper. And did you see the next guidelines that were released a couple of years later? I'm not sure. Oh, it was all gone. Um, <gasps> it was all gone. It was just like a three-page document of a list of the different kinds of running shoes that are available. Oh, my and God. And who might want them for what. And people nope. should just choose what they're most comfortable. And it cited a couple of textbooks and no research. Wow. That reminds me, way back when... Um, I was a cognitive psych researcher at Duke when I was an undergrad. And um, somehow through, I think, my cognitive psych mentor, I got invited to participate in uh, a panel about the design of the food pyramid and food labeling. Oh, and, fun. Yeah. And I said, uh, well, if you're trying to communicate what you're trying to communicate about with the food pyramid, that grains and things are the basis of your diet. I'm not suggesting they should or they shouldn't be. I'm saying this is what they were saying. And that above that was vegetables and um, nuts and seeds, I think. And above that was something. Anyway, there was then there was like meat and dairy were two thirds of the way up the pyramid and then oils, which were just represented by little dots. Mm. And I said to them, if you're really trying to communicate that people should base their diet on these things that are at the bottom of the pyramid, uh, you actually just need to turn the thing upside down because the top is what seems is the most important. And point. and the guys at the FDA lost their minds. They freaked out. And basically, I finally found someone who confided in me and said, yeah, this is all being sponsored by the meat and dairy industry. So um, <gasps> the fact that it looks like it's giving precedence to meat and dairy, because that's the first thing your eye sees at the two-thirds the way up mark. Yeah, that's just the way it's going to have to be. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Fascinating. They, they I also didn't hit know me, that. They also hit me with... Um, on the food labeling, I said, if you think that there's some things that are good and bad, like too much sodium or not enough of this or whatever, just use red, yellow, green, red light, green light, yellow light to indicate good, you know, good or bad. They said, well, we can't do that because the generics are printed in black and white. I said, there's not been a black and white generic label for 20 years. They said, huh? Well, the industries that are supporting this have said that we can't use color. It's like, all righty, now I get it. Yep. So yep. same, yep. same yeah. similar idea for Yeah, well, although it turns the end of the story, or at least is this the end, but the, the current stage of the story is not as bad, which is, yeah. you know, by the time they released the next guidelines, which were a few years later, I could no longer find the 2014 guidelines anywhere online. They had just vanished without a trace. I think um, and luckily site. I had downloaded the PDF. So yeah, I think um, I have it on my site too. I yeah, but no, no, but they're back. Oh. So it's not that they... Like, I don't, there may have been yet further updates to the guidelines, but they have put the 2014 is now again available on the website. So I was very relieved. But yeah, I saw that change and I thought, ooh, somebody pissed off the shoe industry here. Well, Um, but anyway, so just so people know, so the, the, those 2014 guidelines, which were based on exhaustive literature research review, were uh, simple, um, no more than six millimeter drop. No motion control or stability components, mm-hmm. and then lightweight, and then further on in the text that also said a wide toe box. Yeah. And so, like for me, that's like every every runner I work with needs to get there, and we don't do it all at once. And I want them to change their street shoes first. Right. Walking. Because, well, this, yeah. this is an Irene Davis line. She says, "Look, if you're just going to be walking, you can switch right away. If you're going to be running, that's a whole different story." And and that six millimeter drop part that was one of the concessions to the shoe companies who were not making zero drop shoes at the time. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. I thought there was something magic about that number. <laughs> no, there's nothing magic about that number. Um, so all right, backing up then. So we've got the stress fracture thing. We've got, a, a, we've got Achilles and calf things. Yep. What else, anything else on your list of cues that were bad or misheard that led to problems? Yeah, I mean, I think the like standard bad running advice also played in. Um, so <laughs> stuff, yeah, which still is with us. Um, so stuff like, you know, your arms should never cross your body, make them swing front to back. That's mm-hmm. effectively the same as pulling your shoulders back. You know, your weight needs to shift from 
foot to foot. And it can't do that if you're using your arms like the Terminator. So, um, no, no. It's like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. Yeah. Or I even think about Charlie's Angels. But anyway. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, them too. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a counter rotation of upper body and of thorax and pelvis that has to happen in, in gait, right. walking and running. And um, it's a spiraling action. So it's not just in the transverse plane. It's also there's a, a there's a side bending action to it, which is part of, mm. you know, what drives your legs like this and shifts your weight from one foot to the other. And if that has to be there in order for you to for be able to run on any running stores treadmill and have them say, Oh, no, you don't over prony, you just need neutral shoes. <laughs> um, and introducing these movements of the core takes all my clients to a place where the shoe stores say, Oh, we must have made a mistake before. No, no, you're a neutral runner. <laughs> so and it's a critical piece of the puzzle, actually, for getting out of orthotics and transitioning to minimalist footwear, you know, and the sensation from the feet is so powerful that it, it will help you get there. But yep, then I yep. think also, you know, people tried to have a, a sense of safety by yeah, coming down in drop, which I do also tell my clients to do gradually, but and that truly barefoot would be your last step in the process. You'd slowly work up to that when in fact, it needs to be the first step in the process. Absolutely. Every runner, no matter what shoes they're running in, should do a small amount of completely bare skin on the ground, yeah. running because and let's, be, that, and let's be clear not the, the distinction there is many people then say well i should be running in the grass because it's right soft. right like, no on pavement yep get it on pavement yeah yep yep you get, most, uh, you get the most feedback that way and besides there's stuff in the grass i mean the grass is just like taking the cushioning from your shoe and sticking it on the planet and you never know what's in the grass yep things in there i've you know i've found i've that. made all these mistakes i've gotten cut in grass Oh yeah. Glass can hide. And, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, my feet get really running in grass, you know, you step into the grass, it feels so wonderful. It's like heaven, you know, <laughs> and partially that's because of the earthing as well, the ground, uh, electrons, but, but yeah, your feet will feel really tired. It's like running in super cushioned shoes It's yeah. very relaxing to run on pavement. Uh, do you have an uh, opinion about the uh, 180 steps per minute? Things. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm, I'm just buried in a thing about that right now because I thought I had settled my mind about that about five years ago, mm. just in a, I had a conversation with Stephen Levin, who was the sort of pioneer of this concept of biotensegrity. And um, uh, we're talking about, you know, frequency of oscillation, and that, you know, your most efficient frequency is going to be a reflection of your body. It's not like a number that's same the same for everybody. No, let's just to be clear, for people who don't know, one of the ideas that got propagated, I'm not even sure how, is that you should be running at 180 steps per minute. That's like this optimal thing. And um, yes, I've said something similar. I mean, I found it early on, I found a chart that I, I can no longer find because I am not, uh, organization is not one of my skill sets that showed that as people increased their cadence, their steps per minute um, slightly, the amount of force they were applying to the ground started dropping, dropping, dropping. And then at a certain point, it started going back up rather quickly until you become like me, a sprinter where your cadence is as fast as you can go and it's as much force as you can possibly put into the ground because that's what makes you run fast. I can't find that chart. It makes me totally crazy. But yeah, the idea that 180 is some magic number. Um, and Brian Heiderscheidt talks about this, which is, you know, he works with people and has them just move it up their cadence a little bit and see what happens and a little bit and see what happens and a little bit until you can clearly feel diminishing returns or negative returns. But at first, it just feels a little awkward because it's not what you're used to. Although it feels better, it's just hard to maintain because you're so not used to it. But yeah, the how that became it's, the holy grail is amazing. You know, but it's it's still it keeps getting reborn. Like know. you know, like it was it was Jack Daniels. You know, made this observation at the Olympics that all the elite runners at every distance had the same cadence totally not true you know but then again like elite and not elite is a whole different matter and then what's your footwear is a whole different matter and then there's been a lot of subsequent indicate or evidence that uh, cadence is actually speed dependent it's certainly okay. impacted by footwear yeah. but the thing the thing keeps coming back you know somebody just wrote a, another book about running where you know and he's totally a 180 guy and gets all his clients to do it. And they, you know, sing the praises of how what things has done for them. You know, for me as a barefoot runner, I only put 
shoes on if I'm on a surface where I really can't do it. And in that case, there's arrows, <laughs> preferably with nabosos in. But, um, you know, from like, and in, in just thinking more about biotensegrity, you know, and elasticity, um, there are so many factors that play in, but I experience like a change in the hardness of my feet. Mm. In a, in a range of situations, like that's just something that as organisms, we can control, we can choose and we also it's a response. Um, you know, if I'm on like really gravelly broken up pavement, which is like a bad scenario, because gravel on pavement, right. can't go into the pavement when you, you know, if it's on soil, it can get pressed into the soil a little bit when you land on it. if it's on pavement, it only gets pressed into the soles of your feet. And that can be a little ouchy. And so I know I, I sort of automatically and then I sort of also intentionally I know how to so make my feet really soft, right. and really flat, so that there's no not that much pressure in any one spot, my weight's really distributed. Yep. And then of course, my cadence is lower than and my the amount of force I'm putting in the ground is very low, but it gets me totally comfortably across some rocky stuff. Yeah. And um, if I want to run fast, like especially on pavement, I can feel that I make my feet stiffer. Mm -hmm. And the cadence goes up and that gives me, you know, just a lot of the right kind of impact loads my springs running fast. Yeah. Um, and then there's everything in between and there's a speed relationship, there's a cadence relationship, I assume there's also a temperature relationship. There is more than one axis here, <laughs> or two axes, right? And I don't yet feel I understand all of the factors. Mm. I'm actually... I actually just sent off a question about this to biotensegrity guy that I'm about to do a course with this coming month because I'm I'm really trying to understand oh, that. So, well, what I, I'm sorry, I'm going to just talk through one more thing because yeah. I do see, you know, that uh, there's a lot of recommendation to raise the cadence to reduce stress on the knee because you can't really overstride if you take your cadence low enough. Right. There are other ways to stop well, overstriding. It, you actually just made the point I was going to make, and this is this came from Brian Heiderscheid as well who I had on the podcast early on. And that is that um, cadence can be a proxy for some other things. Because mm -hmm. to your point, if you pick up your cadence, it becomes harder to overstride. It becomes harder to have too much ground contact time. So it's not it's not the be-all, end-all. But for many people, it's it, it can um, address a bunch of things at once. And I it's think it's also, it's advice a doctor can give in an office. Also true. That will make a difference. Well, that's actually something interesting. So Irene Davis and Brian Heiderscheidt and Chris Powers pre-pandemic were doing these events called the Science of Running Medicine, and they each were presenting their ideas on what causes running injuries and how to cure them. And the thing with both Chris and, and Brian, both of them had much simpler interventions than what Irene does in her lab, the kind of thing that your average PT could learn and just recommend without really knowing much of anything and you know have a relatively decent hit rate, um, a success rate. And Chris's thing was about leaning and about body angle. And again, if you pay attention to that, um, that can alleviate a number of things like running tall, for example. But the biggest thing to your point is easy things for people to learn and throw out as advice without having to dive deeper into why or what the, the situations would be where you would need to give different advice. And, and it'll work for, you know, those will be, will help most people some amount enough that they'll notice a difference. So, yeah. you know, that's, I totally get that. I would also say though, I've had plenty of runners and triathletes come to me who got hurt in trying to raise their stride rate. Okay. Well, again, and because you can yeah. chop, you chop your movement up, you, you know, you're, you're fighting your body, trying to stick to Absolutely. this thing. And so it's not always a, a positive. No. Well, I mean, I haven't seen a situation where, a small change has caused a problem, but I've certainly seen situations where a big change, 160 to 180, without any, right. without any preparation, can be problematic. So again, like that chart that I can't find of showing the, the small changes leading to, to uh, less force into the ground until you get to a certain point where it turns around. And that point was not the same for everybody, of course. So some people were just going past that dip in the curve to the point where it started applying more force in ways that they couldn't handle because it was creating uh, other movement patterns that were getting in the way of effective running. Yeah. Anything else on your list? Um, no, that's, let me see. Those are the biggies. Oh, training only foot strike, really sore calves. Yeah. I mean, calf stiffness, I guess I would just say 
No, we pretty much covered it all. It's like, you know, like I can always go more granular. Like there's no limit to how granular I'm gonna, I can I'm, go. <laughs> I'm going to toss out one that has nothing to do with cues per se, but it's an interesting thing that I kept seeing, which was let's get past that into misdiagnoses of some of these issues. Hmm. So the number of times where someone came up to me and said, well, I got plantar fasciitis and I look at them and go, no, you didn't. And they go, what? I go, I can tell just from looking at you, you don't have plantar fasciitis. They go, what do you mean? I say, you have tight calves and your tight calves are pulling on your plantar fascia from the top rather than actual plantar fasciitis. And they go, well, my doctor said I have plantar fasciitis. I said, just because I have long hair and I look like a hippie doesn't mean I'm smart, not smarter than your doctor. P.S. I was a pre-med and went through all of it except med school. So FYI, but um, here, I'll prove it to you. And I'll just take my thumb and dig it into their calf. I can see the spot that's tight. And I just dig it in there and rub on that for a little while. I go walk around now and they go, uh, that, that feels better. I go, yep, not plantar fasciitis. So just go have your physical therapist or get a massage ball or do whatever you need to do. Just work that out. Now, you're getting tight calves because of these running form issues that we already talked about. But for now, just like loosen that up a little bit and then we'll talk about the other parts after that. And yeah. I, I remember it happened with a, a special forces guy. He's like 6'5", 250 pounds, you know, no fat on his body. And he said, we're, we're all switching to minimalist footwear and we get a lot of people with plantar fasciitis and I could see it. And I stuck my thumb in his calf. He fell to the ground, which was very exciting. Um, <laughs> I worked on it for a few minutes. You know, he felt better. I said, go back to the base, have your PT do that. And let me know what happens. I saw him a year later. He goes, um, I went back to the base. That's what I did. We all did that. Within a week, we were fine. I said, cool. Great. Yeah, it was fun. So Jay, um, this has been as always a total, total pleasure. And it's not just because we agree on almost everything, um, but, um, <laughs> uh, but suffice it to say, you know, it's always helpful to have another voice point out these things in ways that I didn't point it out or things that I didn't point out because the educational process for this is important because we're dealing with 50 years of propaganda and mythology, and then additional propaganda as people were trying to establish names for themselves in the barefoot movement. Yeah. And you have to, if you're going to do that, you have to differentiate in some way. But the irony of that is we're not all individual little snowflakes when it comes to running. Human bodies all work basically the same. Right. <laughs> and so there's only so much you can do to make yourself sound different than the other guy doing the same thing you are. And that can be problematic. Um, if people would like to get in touch with you and find out more about what you're doing, whether it's just getting education, information, and or actual help, how can they do that? So you can find me at balancedrunner.com. If you look for the balanced runner and you're look at, you end up looking at an Australian guy, you found the Australian balanced runner. Oh. But the balanced runner everywhere else is me. <laughs> so <laughs> should be a woman. Um, yeah, so balancedrunner.com, youtube.com slash balanced runner. So I've got an absolutely dangerous amount of information on my YouTube channel. <laughs> uh, don't try and apply it all at once. And um, uh, the best place to start, I mean, I do one-to-one -one coaching online. I've uh, been doing that for many years, even with Elite Runners, so it works. I've got online an online course you can find on my website, but I've also got a free challenge, a free one-week challenge, 10 minutes a day, covers the basics of what really is healthy running form, what's gonna work for you barefoot and minimalist. And so that's, if, you, if you're curious, if you wanna see what's possible for you, that's the place to start. And you can find that on my website. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, let's see if, you know, you become the first person to be on here three times. You'll have to keep me posted if something pops oh, in your brain. I love talking with you, Stephen. So I'm going to shoot for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's very sweet. So for everybody else, thank you so much for being here. Once again, uh, find out previous episodes and all the different ways you can interact with the movement movement by going to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. Um, again, places to find the content, ways to share and like. And if you're on YouTube, hit the bell icon to hear about upcoming episodes and just subscribe as well. Um, again, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. If you have any questions or comments, recommendations, whatever, you can email me, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. But most importantly, go out, have fun, and live life feet first. <laughs>